Today we're going to be in 2 Timothy 4. And last time we looked at what the Apostle Paul was saying in his letters to Timothy, and he warns of spiritual apostasy, about those who really are, could even be in a solid church, learning solid things, and the desire is for whatever reason to leave. And there's different um, drives and catalysts and such that we'll go into, and what to do about it. Uh, he's really speaking to leaders, but he's also speaking to every believer uh, about really keeping and guarding the faith that has been entrusted to us by the Lord. And today we're going to see uh, his last chapter in this letter. And again, this was re- meant to be read just as a letter. Uh, so this the end of the second letter, his death is at hand. And this is, you can almost read it as a last will and testament. And I want you to really take a moment and think what you would want if you knew that your death was approaching. Kind of get into the mindset. Now, I just read an article, how coincidental, and it says, if I die, application updates Facebook for you when you pass. So if you are thinking you're going to die soon or just in case you don't get caught off guard, you can go into this Facebook app, and then upon your death, you actually have to get three credible people that you know to, to, to attest that you, in fact, have died. And then your post, your status will post about what you want to post after your death. Now, I really hope that we do a little bit more to prepare for eternity than have a Facebook app. (laughs) They have something for everything, really. But we think about this. You know, we have, some of us have possessions, more or less, loved ones, uh, desires. And what about the legacy that we leave? So we're going to go into this and think about what would happen in your life And then as you read the letter, you'll see what the Apostle Paul does. He's just really a great example all around. Uh, Verse 1, he says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Now, this is interesting because he says, I charge you before uh, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, in the Greek, if you understand the sentence structure, the word kai is in the middle. It uh, goes something like tu, theu, kai, uh, kuriu, hesu, yesu, christu. All Greek to me, right? But in, in essence, that kai is an equivalent sign, and with the articles on each side of the equation, there is, uh, it's made to be like an equivalent. So in other words, he's speaking about the same person. God, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's both. He's the Son of God. He's God. He's also our Lord. So just some get, they read that and they get a little confused and they say, but I thought Jesus was God. Yes, he is. But in the English, it doesn't come out the way it's stated in the Greek. Um, so we'll move on from there. So the context here is, number one, apostasy and the re- response to it. And a huge part of that, responding to false teaching, to things that come into the faith to try to poison it or water down, is to remain in God's word. And some will ask me, is it that simple? Yes, it is. Then why do so many men uh, go to all these different extravagant ways in their churches to get people interested, and they're moving away from God's word? God's word has to be the foundation. Sounds so simple. It is, but it's the truth. The Apostle Paul charges Timothy by the highest authority, the Lord who's appearing and whose kingdom will be ushered in, who will judge the living and the dead. That's a perspective check. No one will escape judgment. And when we read the news and we see of evil dictators or evil people that seem to just keep getting away with murder, the Lord will judge the living and the dead. When he comes, those who have passed will be brought back up to be judged as well as those who are alive. Pretty impressive. So we need to be in Christ. And he's also warning Timothy. He loves Timothy, but he's warning him. And this is also sacred scripture that don't mess around with God's word. Now, many have today, and we get frustrated when we hear and see the cults. They seem to be prosperous. But keep this in mind. He will judge the living and the dead. And if you mess with his word... He will hold you to task on that. So he charges him to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. Now, how can we be ready in and out of season? Well, we need to have familiarity with the word. And the question is, do we? Now, I don't mean a pithy scripture on Facebook once in a while. I mean really having familiarity with God's word. To practice God's concepts in work, family, friendship, business dealings, familiarity by experience. And if there's something that we don't understand, 
If there's something we don't understand in the sport that we like, what do we do? We ask someone. So if there's something we don't understand in God's word, this is much more important. It's eternal. We should ask someone if we're that concerned. And out of season, or the word is inopportunely, right? When you least want to do it, Lord, it's not a good time right now. Look at my schedule, Lord. I'm on a schedule. I can't minister to that person. I, I, I'll get around to it another time. You know, and if we are, uh, we are people of faith, the Lord will every once in a while let us know that there's an opportunity. I'll tell you a, a story. <laughs> we talked about this at the men's breakfast. A brother in this church, uh, years ago I was on patrol and I stopped in Dunkin' Donuts. Don't let that get out. I was really hungry, and I didn't get a donut. I got a scrambled egg flatbread sandwich, and I was really loving that sandwich. And somebody pulled up, and a gentleman gets out, and he starts to talk to me. And I'm eating my sandwich. And the Lord is prompting me, here's an opportunity, and I'm, I'm really hungry, and I just want to finish this sandwich. And it was nothing personal. And I, I think I might have been a little bit rude, but he, he didn't remember it like that. So we have this discussion. Eventually, I was... Did what I, I did finish the sandwich, but uh, we started talking, and it was kind of inopportune. It was busy that day. I had things to do, but the Lord, no matter where it is, he can stop you in your tracks and prompt you to minister to somebody, and his family's been with us now for the last few years. What a blessing that is. So if he can use a dumb donkey, he can use me as well. Praise God. He says, convince, rebuke, exhort. See, God's word is multifaceted. I think about in the world, you ever have those, and I have a few of them, a Swiss army knife. You know, there's a corkscrew, there's a scissor, there's a, a screwdriver. These things are getting so elaborate, there's like a, you know, a blow dryer in there now, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it can do many things, but God's word spiritually can also do many things, all the while, he says, with long-suffering and teaching. Now, this is what he means. This isn't just a just-add-water kind of thing, drop, drop, I did my thing, I'm done. God wants us to pour into others. He wants us to pour in our time, our energy, our love. There's no quick fixes with all long-suffering and teaching. And there are some that you might even be mentoring that are difficult. But hang in there because, you know, I know I was difficult when I was being mentored. It took years, many years. But we're supposed to be doing this for the long haul, long-suffering and teaching. And I'll tell you this, that even a rebuke, and I've been rebuked many times, a rebuke is swallowed a lot easier when it's mixed with love. When you know that somebody loves you, and they sit across from you, and they rebuke you, you can take it a lot easier. I'm busted. Other than, I mean, the other extreme is, or the, other, or the problem with that is when someone does it and they really, it's just an authority trip. They just are impatient with you and they just, it's a snap rebuke. So this, God's word is really good for every possible thing that you could imagine. Verse three, he says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is here. These times we are living in. Western Christianity is a smorgasbord table. Everything's accepted, even the cults. You can, you can do whatever you want. You know, it was really neat. My wife and I were watching TV. It was last night or the night before. And there was a woman, she was a liberal talk show host, not admittedly a Christian, and they were talking about people of faith. And she said, you know, basically you Christians, it's a buffet-style faith. You pick and choose what you want to believe. And you know what? She was right. I didn't have a problem with what she was saying. I love when unbelievers hold our feet to the fire because they're right. In the Christian community, there's a lot of picking and choosing, and they pick up on the hypocrisy. And this is what he's speaking about. I've heard some say, well, this particular church makes me feel good inside. It meets my needs. It's really cool. But what about the word? What about that doctrine? It's a little off. Well, you know, they'll sacrifice on the doctrine to meet some type of emotional need. I call this desire-based theology. And that basically says is, Again, it's today. You can say, well, I, I'm living a lifestyle of sin, and uh, I really don't want anybody to talk to me about it. I want to keep everything the way it is, so I'll find a church where I don't have to be accountable. 
It may be in another, uh, my needs need to be ministered to. I need to feel good. I need to express myself emotionally. And I'm not really so concerned about doctrine. I want to go to a church where there's chaos. You can find one. Seriously, it's desire-based theology. What we're doing is, if we do that, we make God in our own image. When he was supposed to make us in his image, we're reversing it. Quite frankly, I want the big G. I don't want the little God. I want the one that I can't control. I want the one who has truth. I want the one who's concerned about my future and holds me to task when I'm doing things that are hurting myself. I have a, um, a poster in my office of Albert Einstein, and he says in the poster, one of the things he says, I want to know God's thoughts. And on the bottom, it says the rest are details. True. I want to know the mind of God. I don't want to go to a church that just makes me feel good. I want to go where his foundation, his word, is being preached. So here's a few things that they do. Number one, they will not endure sound doctrine because they don't have to. Again, because today uh, nobody's ostracized. In the first few centuries, cults and destructive teachings were ostracized. Uh, Now it's mainstreamed. Two, according to their own desires because they have itching ears. The itching ears are the impetus. And it doesn't literally mean that you're constantly walking around like a dog, scratching fleas. It means that you have this, oh, that's interesting. I know I'm I'm hearing the word of God here, but I never heard that before. Well, let me check that out. It's It's a heart desire for something new and different and exciting. That God's word is, is maybe a little trite, a little too common. Three, the action is to heap up teachers for themselves. Be, care, be careful of new movements that are out there that will tell you, if you're going to read any material, you must read everyone in our denomination or our particular slant uh, of what we believe in the scripture. Personally, I listen to Calvary guys. I listen to some great Baptist teachers. I listen to some Reformed guys. And to me, you know, sometimes they're off, but I like to get a variety of, of, of ideas that are honed in on the scripture. And once they start going outside of that, I don't want to read that anymore. Four, they will turn away from the truth. Now, that word in the Greek is apostrepho, where in the English we get the word apostrophe from, from. So what's an apostrophe? So if you're reading a sentence and there's fluidity to it, an apostrophe is an exclamatory digression. It's an aside. It turns you away from the fluidity. So this apostrepho, this turning away from the truth, is an aside. Well, here's God's word and it flows, but uh, what would what, you say? Well, I'm being drawn away by that teaching. And then he says the fifth point is to turn aside to fables. Now, What happens here is that this is the end result. This is the end product. Whenever you dispense with the truth, all we have is a garden variety of fables and lies. That's the only thing that's left. And then they, they try to make the Bible say something it doesn't say. Unfortunately, there are those that like to live on the fringe in Christianity. They like to seek out weird things. There's some people just do that. He says, but you. See, this is a a dichotomous letter. There's always either this or that. Here's the fence, and you're going to be on this side or that side by default. But they're going to turn away, but you hold fast. But they're going to come after you because you're holding fast on the word. But you hang hang in tough, endure those afflictions. So he says, but they, but you, this, this back and forth. Number one, what are we supposed to do? Not just leaders, all of us. Number one. We're to be watchful or vigilant, sober, because the world is going to try to pull us away. It's my job as a pastor to do research. Last Sunday, if you were here before the sermon, we spoke about even some of the emblems and the symbols in the, in the Super Bowl halftime event uh, and some of the things that are going on in Hollywood. It's my job to do the research and inoculate you from destructive forces in the world that are going to try to pull you away. I hate to say it, and this is the truth, though, Madonna has been trying to take young girls and turn them into prostitutes for the last several decades. That's her mission, right? And it's not good. Whether you like what I'm saying or not, I'm doing my job as being watchful and vigilant. Number two, endure afflictions. That means don't quit when it's difficult. And we spoke about the psychological and the emotional component of afflictions. It's not for us to take the easy way out. Last year, I did consultation for two churches with two solid pastors 
who had some type of crisis that was running through their church. One of the pastors, very gentle, very nice guy, and he said to me, Pastor Joe, they're even going after my kids. What? This is in a church? Endure those afflictions. As much as you want to quit, they're even going after your family members. Hang in there. Endure that. And that's not an easy thing to do, but it's, it's charged in the scripture. Three, do the work of an evangelist. That means we don't stop telling people about the way to heaven and the way to salvation. Understand, when I say the word evangelism, again, a lot of these terms Satan has butchered. Uh, hypocrites have taken and twisted. Evangelism doesn't just mean shouting at people on the street corner. Evangelism is love. You are telling people about the way that they can have a relationship with their creator and get to heaven. That's the crux of evangelism. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is love. Okay, here's a cure for your disease, and I'm giving it out freely to anyone who will listen. That's evangelism. Four, fulfill your ministry. I remember as a pastor, uh, the first few years, uh, I went to an overnight with other pastors and wives, and uh, this pastor from Florida, he looked at me, and he, he did this scripture, and the only real thing I remember about it was he, when he went, fulfill your ministry. Things were tough, and there's the thoughts pop up in your head. Do I really want to do this long term? And he knew. He had a sense of the Holy Spirit, and he went right from my heart. But he did it in an encouraging way. Fulfill your ministry. We all have a sense of purpose, but a lot of us are walking through, we're meandering through the world, and we don't know what our purpose is. Let God marry you with your sense of purpose, what you were designed to do to glorify him. And let me tell you something, when you serve others and when you glorify God, you look back at all the things we did, all the self-centered pursuits, and we say, gee, these two don't compare. This is amazing. I'm so glad. What are your spiritual gifts? If you don't know, talk to someone. Have someone pray with you. Ask the Lord. Reveal these things to me, Lord. What is it you want me to do? I'll tell you what, anyone who writes a book, Christian or non-Christian, and this is marketing. There's a lot of brilliant minds out there in the, in the secular and the Christian world. Unfortunately, a lot of times they don't use it for the right reason. They key in on certain things. Hope, that was big in the campaign last time. They key in on purpose, okay? They know that if they can strike that chord in a person, they will buy their material, they will vote for them, they will read it, because everyone is looking for this, whether they realize it or not. It's right here in the scripture. Fulfill your ministry. So far, what do we have? The Apostle Paul is saying, you got to continue the cause. You, you apostasy will increase, and many will go down that road. Now, this cause. Sometimes we can get caught up in causes, even as believers. Now, I'll say this. There's some really notable causes out there, things about your kids, things about uh, uh, social programs and problems, the poor. Those are all good causes. But if our cause supersedes that of what the Lord will have us do, we have it backwards. We have a priority issue. I mean, if we're going to be passionate about anything, it should be the cause of Christ, the cause of advancing uh, so many to be crowded into heaven, for God to just open up his doors and bring everybody in. That's the best cause to be involved in it. And everything else has to take a priority after that. Imagine this. And let me just give you a perspective, and, and let me go through the, where it is in the scripture. Imagine going to church after church after church and finding nowhere where the Bible is read. In some churches, it's, it's a big comedy show. The pastor's hysterical. Everybody's laughing and rolling. But you don't get anything out of it. In another church, uh, there's an emotional component to it. It makes you feel good inside, and it warms your heart. But nobody's reading the scripture, and nobody knows where the scripture is because it's not being read. You know, that was the situation, and I named my son after King Josiah, because Josiah, where was the word? Nobody was teaching it, nobody could find it, so Josiah, in his heart, he's a godly man. He says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to at least start with repairing God's house, the temple. It's in disarray, it's in shambles, and everybody's doing well around here. So uh, someone else finds the book of the law, and they, they take it to King Josiah, and he starts to read it. And he tears his clothes, and he's cut to the heart, and he gets down on his knees in repentance and say, Lord, we've sinned. 
And he proclaims an, a, a national fast in the nation of Israel, right? Because he found God's word finally. And, and, you know, we have it everywhere. There's Bibles everywhere. You can find them in hotel rooms. You can find them, you know, you can get them for free online, etc. But imagine a place where there was no word. And the, oh, part of the reason why 2,000 years later it's been preserved is because people have kept the faith. That's why it's so important. But in Josiah's day, it wasn't so until it was found again. I just want to wrap up this particular section with Warren Wearsby. He's um, an old-time preacher, and I love these guys. He says, preaching must be marked by three elements, conviction, warning, and appeal. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. To quote an old rule of preachers, he should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. If there's conviction but no remedy, we add to people's burdens. And if we encourage those who ought to be rebuked, we are assisting them to sin. Biblical preaching must be balanced. Love it. Couldn't have said it better myself. Six, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now that word departure is, the Greek language is very picturesque. When he says my departure, that's actually a picture of when someone would take down their tent, gather up all their goods and supplies, and move on to another place to live. So Paul's next place to live was in heaven for eternity. I mean, this stuff, blow, the more you study the word, the more it just, that's why they call it the living word. I read stuff over the years, five, six, seven, ten times, and each time I get something new out of it. It's beautiful. So Paul knows his days are numbered. He's, he's um, commensurate, we would understand, to a man on death row, right? He, the unfair Nero was uh, persecuting uh, Christians, and he was being persecuted. It was a kangaroo trial, and eventually he was going to be put to death. So what's the significance of the drink offering? Let me just go into the scripture a little bit. In the book of Numbers, there's a lot of symbolism. Uh, when the Israelites would go to God, they would go to Jerusalem, they would go to the temple, they would offer sacrifices, something that costed them something. So whether it was a, an animal or a grain offering or whatever, uh, the drink offering, you would also bring your best wine. Now, wine had many purposes. It wasn't, and the Bible condemned drunkenness. But wine was medicinal. Wine, there was a lot of things that it was used for. However, a lot of wine back then was watered down. But if you come to God, you would bring your best. You would bring the strongest, best, and, and I believe it was somewhere to the tune of five liters. And with the sacrifice, you would pour out that drink offering in front of God. You would just offer it to him. All right, you would give him your whole amount and your best. Now, the Old Testament symbolism, we look at this as well, is that this was also a type of Christ pouring out his life for us. He gave his life so that we could have eternal life, and he didn't hold anything back. When you had your um, pitcher or whatever you had to dump it, there couldn't have been, well, I'll give God some, and I'll, I'll make sure this is really good stuff. I want to take the rest of it home. It all had to be empty. Number one. He says, I have fought the good fight. Didn't mean he fought every fight, but he fought the good fight of faith. And number two, I have finished the race. I want to cross-reference this with 1 Corinthians 9, <clears throat> starting with verse 24, in a different one of Paul's writings. And he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. You see the imagery, and we've covered this many times, of the Panhellenic Games throughout the Greco-Roman Empire. Everybody understood. I mean, this was bigger than our football and baseball seasons. This, this went on, uh, you know, everybody understood it, no matter what part of that particular culture you were at. He says, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So he's trying to encourage that culture. You guys are sports fanatics, but understand this, I run, 
and I want to win. When I fight the pugilistic events, I don't just swing and beat into the air. I hit my target. So this is, this is the, the uh, what he wants to do is instill this in believers to be just as passionate, if not more passionate, for the things of the Lord and the, and the rewards that we receive as believers more than the sports figures. Three, I have kept the faith. This word is also used as if a soldier was tasked to guard a particular treasure with his life. Right? I have kept the faith. I have guarded it. I have kept it from becoming corrupt by those from the outside that would try to poison it or water it down. So what happens here? Paul gave his best to God. He gave his all. He didn't hold back. He was devoted. Christ was devoted. Now, they weren't necessarily devoted to every social cause or every success cause, but they were devoted to preserving the faith so that we, many years later, could also partake of that eternal life. And my question is, do we return that devotion? When you and I think about the things that get us moving, that get our juices flowing, and we give our all, maybe it's a promotion, maybe it's things that are innocuous, they're not harmful, they're good things. Do we also have that same excitement for the things of God? Do we have that same devotion? Do we take for granted that Jesus died for our sins? Yeah, Pastor Joe says that every Sunday. That's getting boring already. Is it? Is it boring? Is it common? I think we, we get lulled sometimes spiritually into a slumber, into a comatose state. You know, I, imagine if it was the other result. He just damned us all for our sinning. Wow. But no, he wants to bring billions, trillions, quadrillions, everyone crowding into his heaven. He died for all. Now, the crown of righteousness, again, the, you played in these Panhellenic games, you would get these laurel wreaths that they would weave around, and if you win, they would put it on your head, and that was a symbol that you were a victor in the games. But he's speaking about a spiritual crown, a crown of righteousness. What is righteousness? Habakkuk tells us that the just shall live by faith. Faith, meaning to be justified, to be made righteous. In other words, those who live a righteous life, those who live in a life of Christ, in anticipation, in loving anticipation of their Lord's return, a life of faith, receive this great crown of righteousness. And the Lord, imagine that God saying, here, you know, this is for you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's got to beat any achievement that we could possibly think about in this life. And, and all can have that. He says, I love that, because no doubt he thought that others would look at him and say, well, he's the Apostle Paul. He says, particularly, not only to me, but also to all who has, have loved his appearance. So sometimes we can't look at the Bible and say, well, I don't have to do that. I don't have to think of that. That's not going to happen to me because these guys were super. No, he's saying it's, it's available to everyone. And then the question is, do we love his appearing? I had a conversation with a brother this week. We were talking about some things in the economy and such, and we both mused and, and said, uh, you know, the more the world keeps turning, the more events keep happening, the more we realize we're citizens of heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't have a death wish. I love my life. I, God's blessed me with a great life. However, if the Lord came tonight, I wouldn't be disappointed. I have no issue. Now, the only issue I would have would be the salvation of those after that uh, event. But the Bible tells us, even in the times of revelation, many are still going to get saved. Praise God. He knows. He knows. Do we love his appearing? Is there something in your life right now or a future event that you may say to yourself, gee, if the Lord came today, I really would be disappointed. Would we? If we do, we don't understand. I'm not trying to condemn anyone. That your understanding is limited. If any worldly event could possibly be better than the Lord returning, establishing his kingdom, setting everything up, boy, that's going to be a great time. No more will we complain about our governor or our president or our elected officials. I mean, he's, everything he does, wow, that's spot on. That's awesome. You know what I'm saying? Every decision, that's a really good decision. I like this, you know? No more voting. That's great. <laughs> Paul's hope, now, he, again, didn't have a death wish, but he had hope in the death that was going to befall him. I've seen many people die. Some are at peace. Some are resistant. Some are still struggling. Some are terrified. Paul was not crestfallen. He wasn't depressed. 
he wasn't bummed out. Why? Because he had the assurance to know. He knew that he knew that he knew that he knew. Now think about this, and I love to do this, to just put your mind into the situation. No doubt, so he doesn't run away, they lead him out into the field. They bind his hands behind his back with leather thongs. There's a guard on each side of him. They walk him out to the huge stone where he's going to get his head taken off, because if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. That was considered too harsh. That was reserved for slaves. So if you were a citizen, as Paul was, they tried to do it quickly and painlessly, peacefully. But he would have gone to his death, I'm sure, in a crucifixion manner if that was the case, because that was the type of man we're dealing with. So you got the chopping block, and they have his hands behind his back, and they make him kneel down, and he puts his head on the block, and some big dude with a big axe picks that thing up, and he wields it, and he's swinging it. And Paul knew at every moment that when he died, he was going to immediately be with the Lord. He had no question in his mind. Now, it's just me, but if I was in that situation, I would think, I hope he doesn't miss and take my arm off first. You know? Here, let me, let me help you a little bit. You know? Please don't miss. You know? Hack, hack, hack. But I'm sure these guys were professionals. <laughs> You'd cer- you certainly don't want the rookie, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> All right, we're getting way off point here. He musters up enough passion, enough love into this letter to give to Timothy and for us to enjoy 2,000 years later. I want to read one scripture to you as well. Philippians 1, four verses. Philippians 1, starting with verse 21. He says, and again, this is this um, dichotomy again, this back and forth. It's either this or it's that. I'm either in the flesh or I'm in the spirit. Depends on what the Lord will allow to happen to me. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to be here, then I'm going to live for Christ. That's going to be my moniker. That's what everyone's going to see about me, Jesus Christ. He was forgiven for a lot, Paul. He was a bad dude in his former life. But to die is gain. For me, I get to be with the Lord. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Some really neat things are going to happen. People are going to get saved. I can establish a few churches. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful to you. So he knew it was a win-win situation, no matter what the Lord would allow to happen in his life. Times are changing. I just read that there's Iranian warships in the Suez. Well, that hasn't happened in a long time. More provocation, getting closer to a nuke. It's a very unstable government. As a matter of fact, at the end of the Cold War, a lot of nukes were missing from Russia. Nobody knows where this stuff, this fissile material is. So if you think everything's going to be hunky-dory for you know, the rest of your life, think again. As Americans, we're kind of insulated from the rest of the world. Now, I believe that the Lord is impressing upon me to, be, to preach serious stuff. And we laugh we're allowed to laugh. We're not to come to church and be, let's be miserable and put a sourpuss on. No, we're supposed to have joy as believers, no matter what's going on outside of these walls. But the world is a very serious place. And I believe there needs to be serious teachings. Now, you can leave, and some have left, and said, too intense. I'm going to go to see Joel or Rick or any of these guys who are going to teach something real fluffy to me and very surfacy, and you know, I feel really good in a minister too when I'm there. Listen, you got to take the good with the bad. We can't bury our heads in the sand. Things are going on around the world. Right? We need to be cognizant. We need to be praying. We need to be building others up. We need to be building ourselves up and maturing in the Lord. Verse 9. He says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So Paul goes now from uh, future. He's, now he's going back to the immediate situation. This is what recently happened. Timothy, there's a few housekeeping things I need you to take care of for me. Because of the persecution, some have fled. They got scared. Um, and if I look at Demas, he was uh, mentioned in another letter. So probably Demas realized, hey, Christianity is cool. This is a new thing. People are getting healed. People are getting raised from the dead. This is exciting. And then Nero gets into power. And then Nero goes bonkers. 
And he starts torturing Christians. And Demas might have said, hey, it's not cool anymore. You know, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I'm out of here. Anyone associated with Paul may end up in the same fate that he is in. So Demas, he takes off. I want to read to you 1 John, three verses, starting in verse 15. It says that Demas loved the world. Loved the world. Now, we don't know the great details for Demas's love in the world. Sure, f- fear of death might have been a part of it. But if we read 1 John 2, 15, it says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John is powerful. Boy, when we read that, a lot of questions were being asked. He doesn't play games, John. Now, we see him in the Gospel of John, and there's just a loving portrayal of Jesus, but in this book, boy, he really has to lay it down. So the truth is, if any, anyone loves the world, oh, everything that the world can give me, I, my desire is for the world, and we're part of the Christian community, the Bible tells us, not me, the Bible tells us that the love of the Father is not in us. It can't be. They can't occupy the same space. Let me continue. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world, get this, and Paul knew this, is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, how do you get a better deal than that? (laughs) I get to live forever in a perfect state. All the idiosyncrasies, all the things I hated about myself, all my uh, shortcomings sloughed off, and I get to live forever. I mean, it, it just doesn't get better than that. That's what's being offered to us. He says, get Mark and bring him. Now, John Mark, let's understand this. He said, he is useful for me in ministry. Let's look at the history of John Mark. John Mark went with the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. And John Mark, he quit. He couldn't hack it. Again, we don't know the details, but he left. And it was Paul and Barnabas and John Mark and maybe some others. And Barnabas, at the second missionary journey, says to Paul hey, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul goes, no way. I know what he did the last time. He left us high and dry. This, he, this kid's got a problem, you know, or whatever he was saying to him. And they, it says that there, if you read Acts, their argument was so sharp that Paul and Barnabas actually split over this. And Barnabas took John Mark. I believe they went west through Cyprus. And Paul took Silas and went north and west, okay, over what we now know as Turkey. What happens at the end of his life? He says, Mark is useful to me. This is a beautiful story of redemption. Don't miss this one little blurb in 2 Timothy here. As a matter of fact, John Mark wrote one of the Gospels. Isn't it amazing what God can do? Now, I will tell you this, that when I started ministry, before I was a pastor, I probably was like John Mark, you know, I, wow, commitment, sacrifice, self-denial. I don't like those words. None of us like those words in the flesh. So I would come late and leave early and, and, you know, my pastor probably was like, well, I don't know if he's going to be much use, but here I am today. See, I realized that once I became the pastor of this church, I either had to give it all or quit because you couldn't, you couldn't soft pedal it as a pastor. You know, it's got to be. So I, I, I was changed. And I say this to encourage all of you in wherever you are today, whatever trouble, Whatever problems that you have, whatever, maybe you've asked to have been stepped down from leadership at some point, and then you stepped up and stepped down, and you're kind of doing the church stair-stepper thing. You know, I'm confused. I don't know where I am. Tell me that you're a failure. Tell me that you're a loser. Tell me the biggest loser, and I will tell you the biggest loser God can use. And and, and without, without measure. If this guy, John Mark, could write one of the Gospels, I don't care what you did. I don't care what your problem is. I don't care what you screwed up in life. Pastor Joe, you don't understand. I got the biggest loser story for you. It's my life. Hey, let's sit down. Let's pray about this. Let's see what the Lord can do with you. Because he can. You know the ones that scare me? The ones that come up to me and act as if they're perfect and they've never done anything wrong and they're slick. I'll fill in for you on Sunday. You know, I'm that good. I just walked into this church. Those are the ones that scare me. And believe me, I hear it. You know? But this is beautiful. This is, again, I just really want this to minister to you wherever you are in your life. If God can use John Mark, he can use you. 
You know, the bigger the impediment, the bigger the handicap, the bigger the problem, the bigger God can use you. You know why he likes to do that? Because he gets the glory and we don't. That's what I love about my God. Verse 12. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Now I look at this as the Apostle Paul's proverbial bucket list. I mean, he knows his days are numbered, so what does he want? I like the books, the parchments, a cloak, some Christian brothers, and it's a party for me. You know, this is exciting. Again, if we were on death row, condemned to die, a week, a month, we don't know how long it is, what would we desire? What would be our last thoughts? Because this is how you have to read this letter. He wanted fellowship, study, and the love of God's word right to the end. And he probably sent Tychicus to Ephesus so that Paul could leave, come to see him, and Tychicus could kind of take his place and uh, you know, run the church for a while. 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. So Alexander the coppersmith, he did him much harm. He resisted his words. Now, is this a personal vendetta? Of course not. Paul's whole life was about winning souls. His whole life was propagating the words of the Lord. So his resistance probably was the resistance to spiritual things. And he said, beware of him. This guy's tricky. He's dangerous. Now, what happened? Uh, Was he just a false teacher? Did he turn state's evidence? And and this happens overseas and and where Christianity is illegal. uh, Christians are hiding. They're in these small house churches and the government will send out these spies and they'll infiltrate the house church and then they'll report it to the authorities and then they'll bust them. You think they were selling heroin or something, you know what I'm saying? I mean, this is how frightening, this has to be, listen, China, Iran, North Korea, I'm sure they have pretty bad criminals. They're throwing Christians in jail with these type of folk. But what's really neat is they're converting the people in prison to Christ, which is really a neat thing. But what did Alexander do? We don't really know. Um, as a matter of fact, in Iran, I'm told that they, when they bring their cell phones into Bible studies, they remove the batteries from the cell phones so that the government can't pick up them on GPS. So the Christians are getting smarter as well. I like it. Why does he take a harder line on Alexander? Now, there are the other ones he, he listen, he, they forsook him, they fled, they were afraid. You know, again, it's not vindictive. Alexander was a different story. He was in the church to cause problems. He was in the church to infiltrate. So he's like, you know what, he's the Lord's issue, but stay away from that guy because he's dangerous. When you stand on the word of God, even amongst some of your Christian friends, it can be a lonely place. Make no mistake. When you're out with your peers, it can be a very lonely place. And Paul was seeing that firsthand, not that he didn't know it. So when you stand on God's word, don't always expect even other Christians to, to uh, encourage you and support you. They may be in, in, a, in a, uh, some carnality. So it can be a lonely place. 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And you might say, Paul, where were you? (laughs) Did they not feed you and were you hallucinating? How could you say that? You're in prison. You're going to die. History bears that out. But see, we're looking at things from the flesh. He's looking at things from the spirit. You know, did Satan win? Satan, you know, Jesus, um, was it Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53? I'm not sure. In one of those scriptures, uh, the Psalm of, of the crucifixion and the suffering servant, during the crucifixion, he said, strong bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. And a lot of Bible scholars have looked at that and spoke about that, that really represented the demonic realm, kind of licking their chops, watching Jesus, the son of God, on the cross, thinking that they won. They didn't win anything. It was a victory for Christ. You see? So Paul's saying, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Yeah, Nero killed me. Big deal. The word is still going to go forth. I got my letters out there. The Holy Spirit is still in the world. The Lord's going to do something. It isn't about me. Very impressive. Verse 19. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. 
Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. So that's where Linus comes from, not the peanuts. They got it from the Bible. <laughs> so there's two camps here as we, as we close. Number one, you've got the camp of Luke, Onesiphorus, Timothy, Priscilla, Prissa, and Aquila versus Alexander, Jans, and Jambres. And we really have to stop and ask ourselves, how would history reflect on me? If I lived in those times, where would I be? Where would I stand? Paul wasn't popular. He was a condemned man. Maybe the authorities threatened everyone. Anyone who comes to minister to him, we got your number as well. Maybe that's why they left. We don't know the details to it. I have to ask myself, where would I stand in that time period? Who would I be grouped with? Would I be known as somebody who was fearful, a Judas, a traitor, just to save my own skin? Or would I be known as somebody who was loyal, faithful, a person of valor, redeemed like John Mark? Yeah, he messed up. So did Peter. And look at the pillars of the church that they became. I want to be in the second category. He says, bring the cloak. Um, get here before winter. Uh, the, the reality is that, uh, you know, Prisoners back then didn't have the same amenities that prisoners in our country have. Uh, if you visit the Mamertine prison in Rome, in Italy, uh, it's a dungeon. It's uh, damp, black mold, bugs. It really, it's basically a hole in the wall that they threw a hole in the ground that they threw him in and, and threw food down to him. And you know, a lot of you know, when it was cold in the winter, it was freezing. He needed his cloak. But what's interesting is we get to see that we often, or at times, we need to rely on others as well. The discipler had to rely on his disciples. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus just needed a little, little camaraderie, a little brotherhood, and try to get the James, John, and uh, Peter to stay awake and pray with him. And they kept falling asleep on him. He just was looking for a little camaraderie. So at times, the discipler will need his disciples. And this is an example of that. And the last point before we close is, Trophimus was left in Miletus sick. So Trophimus was sick. We know that Timothy was sick. The Apostle Paul wrote that to him. Paul had the thorn in his flesh. He was some type of sickness. And I think it's safe to say with these heroes of faith that we're not always going to be better. There is a doctrine out there that teaches that. The Bible teaches otherwise. I'm not going to sit here and say that those heroes of faith had less faith than me because I'm well and they were sick. That's just false doctrine. Right? The Christian life... You know, if you think that you want to come to the cross and you want to make that profession today because everything's going to be great, maybe pray about it a little bit longer because that's not guaranteed you or I. Um, sometimes life becomes more challenging because God now is there with you. What did Paul say? But the Lord stood with me. I believe that the Lord, he felt his presence, that when he went through the trials and, and he's listening to the evidence and they're saying awful things about him and he's, and he's trying to explain his point, but I just, I, you know, I love you too, Nero, and, and you, counsel, and, and all you guys, and I just want you to come. Yeah, well, we're condemning you, and you're going to die, and this is the date, and, you know, no more of your friends coming up here to help you out. He said that the Lord stood with him. Yeah, I believe that Paul was fearless. I think he was bold. But you know what? Sometimes we have our down moments, and when, when we really need it the most, we can call on the Lord, and he can be with us. Now, he promises those things to us, and he will be supernaturally strengthening us. But the Lord was with me. And it's not just for him as an apostle, it's for everyone here in this room today. So, this is a last will and testament. What is Timothy receiving? What is Paul saying? But better yet, what is God saying? And what is God saying to us 2,000 years later through this letter? Well, if we wrap up both letters, number one, we have to look at leadership. Sorely lacking in our country these days. A true leader will lead by biblical precepts. A true leader will lead with commitment, sacrifice, and self-denial. Ugly words to our flesh when we're in the flesh. Two, discipleship. If we don't pour into others, especially the youth, there won't be a next generation of Christians. That's an easy one. I hear sometimes the complaint about the youth today, but maybe some of it is our fault. Maybe we're so busy with our pursuits that we're not noticing the youth that are looking up to us and ask questions and we just kind of push them aside. I've, I've known some really awesome pastors whose sons, sometimes daughters, pastor's kid syndrome, 
who grow up and they don't follow the Lord anymore. Was the church ignoring those kids? Was the, I mean, and here's the truth. Many of you want me to pour into your kids, and I love the youth. I always try to show up for every youth event. But who's going to pour into my son? Who's going to pour into some of the kids that seem like they're introverts and they're hanging out in the corner and nobody notices them? This is how it works. Where's Jesse? <laughs> that, that's one Jesse up there. I pour into Jesse. Jesse's about 10 years younger than me. Jesse pours into Taylor. Taylor's about 10 years younger than him. Taylor pours into my son, Josiah, who's about 10 years younger than him. And good luck, because he's got his old man's will. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that that's how it's going to go down. But I'm saying this is what we need to keep in mind. We can't complain about the youth if we're not paying attention to them. Because if we're not pouring into the youth, somebody else will. And then you're not going to get them back. You better be praying for them, because they'll be your prodigal. So we need to be pouring in. We need to be observing in this church who the young people are and recognizing them and not just walking past them. It's really important. Three, the Apostle Paul was leaving the earth with no regrets, no compromise, and a clear conscience in obedience to the Lord. Can we say that? Right now, if my life was to be taken, can I say no regrets, no compromise, and obedience to the Lord? Four, Paul had nothing to bequeath to anybody, but his legacy 2,000 years later is incredibly strong in a spiritual sense. He had nothing temporal to bequeath, but what he gave was all spiritual and did so much more than anything that he could possibly given to Timothy or anybody else. And lastly, if this is a call to stay in God's word, to disciple others, and to rise to the occasion that the Lord has called us to, are we willing to do that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love your word because as Paul is passionately writing to his young protege, Timothy, loves him, would, uh, would just want to see him one more time and, and encourage him and fill him. Uh, you know, his, his desire was just for your words to continue.